I get a call once from one of my favorite survivors, a story of strength and resilience like we love them. Strong, empowering, full of awareness and a lot of grace. They started the call by saying to me, I'm trying my best to heal from what I went through and it feels like I'm getting some resistance from my family. Big sigh, y'all. Can y'all relate? Hi, I'm Ludwine. I'm your friendly neighborhood widow. We speak often of open doors, of doors that close to us. Today, I'm speaking of what I like to call the 15th door. Before I get to it, please turn up your volume for the reading of the warning label. Warning! Subscribing to this podcast can expose you to subjects and conversations about love, loss, physical and emotional abuse, mental health, and resilience. Your Friendly Neighborhood Widow podcast is a platform that makes room for the conversations that have been deemed taboo. This podcast is the accumulation of raw and unfiltered thoughts from a domestic violence surviving widow. Side effects may be unexpected anger, inspiration, self-esteem boost, or laughter so strong you may pee your pants. An open mind and a change of undergarments are suggested but not required. And if you deem it necessary, please consult a therapist before listening. Thanks for joining! Survivorship may feel a lot like having to constantly justify your healing process to others. When you've lost enough and you're setting out to nurturing a mindset of survivor joy, of post-traumatic growth work, the fear of losing more might make you sensitive to the lack of acceptance within your environment. In 2019, I released a book, Not a Widow's Handbook, which is now available on Amazon.com. It is a seven-chapter book in which I share about the first five years of my experience in widowhood from the perspective of a domestic violence surviving widow. In some corners of my environment, it was seen as blasphemy. Chapter one addresses my love story. Depending on how you look at it, it reads as speaking ill of the dead. It was important to set precedence, though, of widowhood by telling the story of the relationship I was set to mourn and how particular it would have been in my experience. And fortunately, telling my own story means elaborating on the many actors who trigger the actions and the reactions that end up being my life, being my testimony. Speaking your experience is also speaking on how you've experienced others. So as you keep reading the book, you discover how much experiencing this unorthodox love story will come to play a huge part in my healing. One other thing is widowhood is not always perceived as a journey of its own that can be tailored to the individual, although it should. I say this a lot because it's an important fact to remember when we talk about normalizing survivor joy. Oftentimes, people in our environments get stuck on the death part. So identifying as a widow at such a young age can make our environment uncomfortable because in their perception, this marital status that is a direct result to the passing of someone is automatically attached to misery, suffering, and whatever calamity you can connect to death. I often wonder if orphans or people who lose children or anyone else who experiences such a loss is subject to similar resistance. Some survivors have said yes to me, and we shared war stories on the matter. I'm telling you, you gotta be a fly in the room. You, you'll either wild out or feel real guilty, but don't do that second part. If you don't have to, it's our experiences. You can learn from them, blah, blah, blah. When you read my Instagram feed, 
which I use as a blog, you'll often find me encouraging other survivors, no matter where they are in their personal development, to create the post-traumatic life they think they deserve. One thing I know is that it comes with a never-ending Q&A session. And I'm quickly passing over the unsolicited advice from friends, family, and anyone else. Shortly after releasing my book came this podcast, Your Friendly Neighborhood Widow Podcast. Yes, I'm a Marvel fan. So if you are too, you caught on the play on word pretty pretty quickly. (laughs) However, there's more. But I'm going to take a break and tell you about it when I come back. Yep, it's the last season. It's the last season of my podcast. But it's not the last season of my post-traumatic growth. It keeps going. So if you want to keep up with me, it's okay. Get to Insta. It is at ludwine.johnson. L-U-D-W-I-N-E dot Johnson with an H. So we'll catch up then. We'll catch up then for most more post-traumatic life on my own terms. We'll catch up then to see everything else that I'm up to outside of podcasting. If you really miss my voice and you really miss the podcast, that's okay. I have decided to do a podcast about dating. I know. It's called Who Let the Widow Out? And it is here on the platform that you're listening from. Who Let the Widow Out? Yes. It's about frolicking through dating red flags. Dating is cute and sweet. But when your brain is rewired (laughs) post-trauma, so many things are happening. So catch up then. Let's let's talk. Let's listen about my crazy dating stories until I finally figured out how it was meant to work out for me. I've loved, I have loved doing this podcast. It has taught me so much about myself. It has changed so much. My expectations from it have changed so much over the last two years that I've, oh, now three years that I've been doing this. Thank you. Thank you for understanding the power of telling your story. And I think I'm forever going to be thankful for this having been my very first podcast. Gosh, I love this. It's been amazing. So if it helps you, if it helps someone else, go find the episode that does, send it, share it. This podcast may be over in the sense that I'm no longer going to be making new episodes, but I think the message here and me lending my story has value. And if you find that value, go ahead and share it. I think it's beautiful. Listen, it's hard sometimes to say, I'm thankful to have found the lessons in my experience. I did not know when I fell in love and when I went into my marriage that I was going to come out of it broken to rebuild to be stronger. I wouldn't have chosen that. I would have chosen a happily ever after that includes a white pick of pants and just me longingly looking into these blue eyes and laughing at these cynical jokes for the rest of my life. That's not the way the cookie crumbled. And while it took me a long time to accept that, I have finally accepted it. Um, This last season will show you that maybe everyone hasn't yet. And I think that's okay. But we're going to get there. And no matter what you do, Normalize survivor joy and do post-traumatic life on your own terms. You are your own experience and you nurture the post-traumatic life you feel you deserve. We'll talk later, okay? 
In the very first episode of your Friendly Neighborhood Riddle podcast, I read off the definition of the word friendly and follow up with saying, I come in peace, loss, tragedy, abuse, pain, death, money, sex, all that icky weird stuff. It's uncomfortable. It's not easy to bring up. It's hard to make it an everyday conversation. It's not as easy as, what are you having for breakfast? So when your post-traumatic life looks easy, so this time I really don't want you to rewind because you're probably driving and your hands are gross from cooking or making your morning smoothie. So I'm going to go ahead and say it again. When your post-traumatic life looks easy, it's confusing. Additionally, as people, we're fixers. When I first came out as a woman with alopecia, for example, I received an incredible amount of hair growth advice. I was advised to keep on wearing wigs. People had creams. Why am I saying when I first came out, actually? Just the other day, my aunt scolded me for choosing to look like a man. Baby, I could never. But we want to make the discomfort go away. So we reject a representation of healing that goes completely against everything that we know. As survivor, this means that you're often feeling misunderstood. 30 and newly single with an Instagram handle that reads, your friendly neighborhood widow. 30 and single and not skipping a beat when someone asks if I'm divorced and right away I say, nope, widowed. And you can feel your loved one's elbow sink within your side. Don't say that. Um, but why not though? No, but seriously. Is leading people on and completely admitting a part of your story the ideal here? Let's talk about that. So no, you aren't going to be applauded for choosing joy, for choosing healing on your own terms. No, they won't like it if you date too early, if you come home too late, if you have another drink, if you take that trip, if you do that thing that is registering in their mind as the next step of healing. I think I said that wrong. What I meant to say was, if you do not <laughs> do that thing that is registering in their mind as the next step of healing, I'm always careful to not highlight the bullies or to not just highlight the bullies. But I wouldn't be doing you a favor if I didn't warn you before going into this story about love. Love. In chapter two, The Grief and All of Us of my book, Not a Widow's Handbook, I start with four people standing in the room. When the lights go out, everyone reacts in their unique way, completely changing the dynamic of the room. Person one, I'm afraid of the dark. This person is your, in your environment isn't ready to accept a representation of post-traumatic life that challenges the dark. Your experience may have triggered a fear in them that they aren't ready to face. So their defense mechanism may be to push you, your story, or growth, your decisions away. To scream, denial! To fight like heck. The lie that grief has come back in their lives to tell them. The lie that grief tells all of us when someone else is going through something and seeming to manage better than us, that we're not strong enough. So your strength challenges theirs. And because they haven't made the decision yet to face their trauma, they can't accept yours. They can't accept your path. And that's not personal. It's going to sound like it is, but that's not personal. I also had to learn that, though. Person two, who turned off the lights? This person may feel as though they're held responsible for your pain. 
a loving parent that's done their best has a hard time understanding whether or not they're responsible for your pain. Have they not prayed enough? Is there a sin they haven't asked forgiveness for? A best friend wonders if they haven't been there for you, if they haven't been a safe space, if they haven't been understanding. A sibling wishes they had been nicer. They wish they could have seen it. They wish they could have stopped it. They wish there's something they could have said, done, thunk for you not to be where you are today. Oh, that feeling of powerlessness. Sometimes it's just shame. Your testimony is so uncomfortable that there's fear attached to being connected to it. So it's rejected automatically in order to protect their own image. Everyone isn't in a space to register your walk as a walk of strength. Sometimes you're just the result of death until the work within, within them is done and their own life experience allows them a new perspective on your testimony. You are just a result of tragedy and that registers as something ew, icky, uncomfortable. And there's a third person. There's got to be a way to fix the lights. <clears throat> this person will finick with the light switch, pull out the wiring, do anything, attempt to take over your testimony. Now, this has gone a couple ways in my experience. A fixer who needs to fix because the sooner they fix, the sooner you'll be restored back to normal. See, your experience may be so intense that you do not necessarily see what's happening outside of it. But the ripple exists. It is there in others, in their lives. And fixing you somehow makes someone feel like they're fixing what your pain has triggered in their own lives. The other way this has presented it is in someone seeing your pain as an opportunity for stardom. They may fix for the credit, the people's champ, having been able to restore balance into the universe, the guardian redeemer that would make it all go away. But not just for you, not just for you, but for everyone looking in, this may come with a spring of uh, manipulation because those who love us for the broken pieces of us, they get to hold on their hands like poker chips and they only love us. They only value us when we elevate them, when the pieces of our broken testimony are in their hands and we have to wait for them to play their hand in order to feel any kind of happiness or validation. You may feel like every door you walk into is hiding these three styles of people, these three types of people, these three types of experiences. As you barge in with your commitment to healing and choice to nurture joy, every single door seems to hold resistance. Door one, door two, door 12, door 14, and finally, door 15. I'm choosing the 15th door because the meaning of the number 15 in the Bible is rest. Rest. Salah. Calmly think. Walking into the 15th door, you'll find rest. The fourth person in the room who will patiently wait for the lights to return. See, this doesn't mean that they're not afraid of the dark. Oh, it doesn't mean that they don't wonder who turned off the lights in the first place. It's not that they do not wish to fix it. It's just that they have accepted the things they can't control. Your healing being one. Your healing journey being one. The choice of your post-traumatic life being one. Behind the 15th door, there's love. 
Maya Angelou shared a story about one of the last conversations she's had with her mom in which she liberates her. She allows her to go if she's ready because love liberates. She tells a story of when her mom liberated her when she was just a young skeptical woman leaving her home for the first time, allowing her to go on and live her experience without fear of judgment and knowing that there's always a pair of open arms waiting for her on the day she's not at her best. Behind the 15th door, there's a home full of love. This Maya Angelou story has gotten me thinking about love and how it's often represented in such a possessive and controlling way. I don't mean this to vitalize love. Oh, on the contrary, I love love. No, but I really want to highlight love in the places we sometimes might have missed it. Holding hands, a tight hug, a snuggle, a kiss, an exchange of rings, the representation of togetherness. That's love as we usually see it. But liberating love may also be found in the last look exchange when someone is walking away from us and looks over one more time before turning the corner. There's also love at the end of that jog we do before we stop and wave at the beautiful window in the back at the beautiful face, sorry, in the back window of a car, waving goodbye at us as they're moving on to something we don't know and we can't control. There's also love in the hug a parent gives their child at the end of the aisle, right before giving them away into marriage, into a new chapter, where they're not going to be there to see it. Just like there's love in the kid's heart who sprints away into a room full of stranger, away from their parents' sad and confused look, away into that first day of school, completely ignorant of what the future holds, but keeping this blind optimism that it could be just an awesome time. See, this is why I always look forward to the 15th door in season of, they don't get it. Why don't they understand? They're not getting it right. What do they say this about me? What do they think this about me? In this seasons of resistance, we just can't connect to our environment as our post-traumatic development um, continues and develops. Normalizing survivor joy is looking forward to the spaces in which we meet liberating love, all the while giving ourselves the opportunity to nurture a love that liberates towards us and towards our environment. We'll talk later, okay?